This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Here and now, the program featuring the news and interests of the African-American community. Here's your host, Sandra Bookman. Coming up, exploring the lives of iconic civil rights leaders, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X will introduce you to the stars of the new National Geographic docudrama series, Genius MLKX. Also ahead, cardiovascular disparities and a new clinical trial at Mount Sinai that focuses on women and minorities. Plus, celebrating a century of black art and artists at the Montclair Art Museum and the author of a new book, putting a spotlight again on Hollywood's first African-American movie goddess, Lena Horne. That's all ahead on Here and Now. Reverend. Minister. We have been oppressed. We are forced to ride the back of a bus so a white passenger could sit. Innocent black men are in prison. How many more have to be slain for America to say enough is enough? That is a clip from Genius, MLKX, a new National Geographic docudrama series that takes an unprecedented look at the rise to power of two iconic civil rights leaders, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and their dueling philosophies in the fight for racial equality. Joining us today are the stars of Genius, MLKX, Calvin Harrison Jr. and Aaron Pierre. So nice to meet both of you. Likewise, thank yeah. you for having us. Thank I, you. I gotta believe that this, in a lot of ways, has to be like the role of a lifetime. You know, you're taking on uh, characters that, real people that are revered, they're, you know, idolized by so many people. So I'm gonna, this question for both of you. How intimidating was it once you got the role? And, you know, what was the hardest part of trying to embody Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X? Mm. I'm going to start with you, Calvin. I mean, it was definitely intimidating. I was, I was really overwhelmed. I remember I was getting, I got the call and I was in the middle of preparing for a, a different, like, real person. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I told my manager, I was like, respectfully, I think I'm going to pass because I don't know if I'm equipped to do this yet. I said, I still feel too young. I feel too inexperienced. I don't really know if I have the tools yet to craft an accurate or a, um, a, even a compelling portrayal mm -hmm. of Dr. King. So I met with the executive producers because they asked again. <laughs> and I got on Zoom with them and I expressed my like, concerns. And they said, it sounds like you have this feeling of imposter syndrome. And that's exactly why we think you would be really great in the role because Dr. King also was so young and he also felt so insecure and afraid and anxious about what he had to take on. Um, use some of that and kind of put one foot in front of the other and that's what I did but I'm really grateful I did it though I've learned so much now you know well there was no imposter syndrome appearance when you performed the role a fantastic job thank you and it wasn't just an imitation thank you I think you 
reminding us all of just how young he was when all of this is going on in his life mm -hmm. really does make people understand why it sounds like you were the perfect choice for the role. Mm -hmm. That makes me happy. And how about you? Likewise, um, <laughs> I share that sentiment. Um, I was in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana at the time uh, doing uh, another, another film, Rebel Ridge. And um, I got the call on uh, Malcolm X's birthday. Wow. And um, they said, you know, they would like to offer me the role. Um, that is Gina Prince-Bythewood and Reggie Rock-Bythewood. And um, similarly, I, I, I didn't say yes immediately because I was, I was terrified, you know. <laughs> I immediately understood and identified the, the magnitude of what embarking on that journey was and the enormity of the responsibility. And um, again, I, I didn't know if I had the capacity. I didn't know if I had the endurance, the stamina, the emotional intelligence to portray Malcolm X. Um, but again, you know, I, I leaned into that and, um, you know, we, we, we I, I tried to utilize those, those feelings of, you know, imposter syndrome as fuel. I tried mm -hmm. to let that propel me as opposed to prohibit me. Right. Um, and we're hopeful that, um, you know, that that translates. And I, I'm assuming for both of you, feeling the, you know, this reticence to take on these iconic roles is because you have so much respect for, for the legacy of both of these men. So how, you know, once you got past the, the point that you had accepted the role and now we're going, how do you prepare? Are you, are you reading historical documents? Are you looking at past portrayals? How do you get ready to portray people that we all kind of think we know? Yeah. That was the question we had to ask ourselves. <laughs> Where do we begin? I think for me, I started with, uh, I just wanted to watch everything again from um, the perspective of an actor, which is, I feel like I'm an investigator. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to investigate what is the truth, what does this behavioral um, mannerisms mean, what, what, what is all of it? And then I ended up getting, I kind of used it as a supplemental um, material, which was a, like, it was like Shakespeare's complete works, but Dr. King. Mm -hmm. So he had every mm -hmm. sermon and every speech he had ever written since the day he entered seminary school till the day he um, passed away. And um, I just kind of started researching and reading and dissecting and then looking at the philosophers that he was interested in and trying mm -hmm. to adopt mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and then eventually the last component was visiting as many places as I could that he kind of walked on. So I went to Memphis and I went to Atlanta and I went to uh, DC. I went to I went to Birmingham. I went everywhere I could get my hands on, and uh, and then I just I had to throw it all away and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Aaron? The, the similar. Uh, again, likewise. You know, it was. Um, I th I think for me, um, you know, subjectively in my viewpoint, I think there is a considerable amount of misinformation about Malcolm X in the world. So my approach was one of I wanted to seek information from what I perceive to be as close to the source as possible. So I wanted to hear from him and his immediate circle. Mm -hmm. So I went and read the autobiography uh, dictated to Alex Haley. Um, I watched a documentary that was uh, guided uh, by Dr. Betty Shabazz. I, I read The Sword and the Shield by Peniel E. Joseph. Um, I watched more footage than I can articulate, you know, of him in interviews, of him on panels, of him uh, doing lectures, uh, speeches. Um, and then again, I, I came to New York and um, I spent time in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, you know, areas evolve and they change, but what 
is always there is the the residual and the the, the great history of a, of a place and everyone who has walked there. And I felt so blessed and privileged to have the experience to to be in Harlem and to, to breathe that air, to walk on those sidewalks, to walk on those streets. And it just gave me a feeling of real empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I, I went into the role with that, that fueling me and propelling me, you know. Um, and then like Kel said, and at a certain point, you just have to let it all go. And, and do what you guys do. And yeah. One of the things you said I find interesting about, it's about, in particular, about Malcolm X, some of the misinformation. And one of the things this series does, from my perspective, is it shows that, you know, some people call it the, you know, the dueling sides, the dueling paths of these two men. But I think it also demonstrates how, almost how important they were to the success of each other. This is it. That, would you say that you feel like this project really illustrates that? I, th I think that's a really important uh, and beautiful point there. I think, um, and we speak about this a lot, mm -hmm. I think there is, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of school of thought that considers them diametrically opposed. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't land there after my research. Mm. I, I land in a place of, you know, they, they had the same objective, they had the same end goal, they had the same vision, they just had different understandings of what route was most conducive to achieve that. Um, and I think actually there's a lot of synergy, I think there's a lot of synchronicity, and I think their different approaches actually inspire one another um, to, to pursue the best version of their respective paths. Yeah. You know? But I think they're, it's, as opposed to this, I think they're, they're running parallel. One of the other things that I love about this uh, about this series, uh, Calvin, is that the women aren't just uh, you know peripheral characters. Um, we really get a sense of of how important Coretta Scott King and Betty Shabazz were to their husband's success. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, we don't have the actresses here today. But is that a part of the story that you felt like you knew beforehand? And 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 how important uh, is it? that you think that be shared with audiences here as well. It's huge, you know, Ruruche Opio, who plays Coretta Scott King, said something really interesting when she got the part, she expressed to her family back at home, and she was like, I'm playing Coretta Scott King, and they were like, who? And she goes, Martin Luther King's wife, and they go, ah! Mm -hmm. And it was just goes to show you how little information we all have, you know, it's always in respect to this, these names. Mm -hmm. And, but Coretta chose Martin in a lot of ways, and what I think the show displays is that she knew just as much as Martin, sometimes if not more, especially when it came to like the Vietnam War. You know, she was well-researched and knew so much information about that and was constantly fighting that battle mm -hmm. internally and then eventually spoke out about it and inspired Martin to make that big move. And there's so many other instances where we kind of just watch these women just guide them, support them, love on them, encourage them, remind them of what their purpose was and that mm. it's much larger than what they can even see at times. And um, mm -hmm. you even think about Credit Scott Keen and Dr. Jerry Shabazz, they kind of led that movement 33, 33 years after they passed. Yep, they kept you know, it going. They kept it going they and it going. that's huge, that's yes. huge. What are you hoping viewers walk away from once they get a look at the at the project uh, is it your hope that they're getting just a fresh look at the legacy of these two men or is it and is it also that they get to see the in-between times you know we all know the big moments in people's lives but it's that behind the scenes in-between times that sometimes really tells you who people are and it seems like this is what your project does in a lot of ways yeah, yeah i think i think um 
that's definitely something that we're we're hopeful that um, you know audiences who who choose to uh, gift us with their time and engage with this um, walk away with you know uh, an insight into uh, we we like to say like the the moments before and after the podium the moments before and after the famous speeches that have stood the test of time and are timeless. Um, and in my experience, actually, stepping into this, I had a tremendous reverence for Malcolm X. And actually, now understanding from my research his humanity and everything that he went through in his personal life, that just makes me have an even greater reverence for him. You know, So I think, hopefully, this is a starting point for people to be inspired to embark on their own research and their own investigation into who these people mm -hmm. really were. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. And I'm just going to ask you, because they're going to tell me I'm running out of time. Is there anything you learned about either men that, that shocked you, that you didn't know before you got involved in this project? Oh, my God. I mean, so much. <laughs> I feel like everything I got in the pages every day, I was shocked. But I think the biggest thing, and it seems like the smallest thing, but, you know, Martin Luther King's biological name, birth name was Ma Michael. And his father changed his name after a trip to Germany and mm -hmm. um, meeting a theologian named Martin Luther. And he basically it was he, he decided that there was a, a calling on him at an early age. And I think that's such a defining moment in Martin's life is because, you know, we shy away from our call to duty. We shy away from what our purpose can be sometimes because it can get overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But what's so beautiful about these two men is that they said yes. They said yes despite their insecurities and their fears. They said yes despite the dangers. They said yes. And I, 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 I'm blown away by him and I'm moved by it and I'm shocked by the, that it started with just a name change. But it, it inspired me so much. And I, I also think that's going to be one of the things that inspires a lot of people as well. 100%. Right. Kelvin, Aaron, fantastic job, both of Thank you. Thank you. And I do believe people will be moved and lives changed. It airs Genius MLKX. It's an eight-part series that will air weekly on National Geographic and stream on Disney Plus and Hulu. I'm going to send you to nationalgeographic.com and natgeotv.com to find out more information, not only about this project, but also the other wonderful projects at NatGeo. It is such a pleasure meeting both you. of you. Job fun. well done. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. February is American Heart Month, a time to focus on cardiovascular health. 
Doctors warn that a recent spike in cases of the flu, COVID-19, and other respiratory illnesses can trigger cardiovascular complications. And joining us today is Dr. Isilma Fergus, also known as Dr. Icy. She is a professor of medicine and director of cardiovascular disparities for the Mount Sinai Health System. Welcome back. It's always nice to see you. Always nice to see you. Thanks for having me again. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, you come always bearing important information. I referenced that spike in flu and COVID-19 cases and some other respiratory illnesses that I think we've had all of them running around through the newsroom here. Yes. Um, why does that, should that be of concern uh, in terms of our cardiovascular health? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, this so-called triple-demic, which includes COVID, RSV, and the flu, it can cause a spike in inflammatory sort of systems throughout the uh, body. Your inflammation goes up. Basically, if there's a vulnerable plaque in someone who mm. could have had a heart attack, that plaque may rupture. If um, because of the sympathetic overdrive, your heart rate may go up, you may end up getting an arrhythmia, a fib or SVT. And for those with heart failure, it can set them back. So you can get heart failure, you can get a heart attack, you can get SVT. And Sandra, we're seeing some people now with what's called myo carditis or pericarditis, mm -hmm. yeah. which is just an inflammation around the heart secondary to these, uh, these uh, you know, viruses that we're seeing. And are we seeing more of that? And do I, are people finding out they have these heart issues once they get sick? Or, you know, how does that work? You know, people present to the emergency room with chest pain, okay. their heart racing, uh, and then they're gonna get a, they'll get a check for COVID, flu, or RSV. Mm -hmm. So once they're linked, you can say that that's probably a causative factor. So people are presenting, um, and then they're getting these checkups. Typically in the past, before COVID, and you come in with these heart symptoms, you may not have been getting a test for a virus. Okay. So I think it's linked more closely now. And because we know that they're linked, we're checking people. And that yeah. link was established, I guess, when we went through the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And that's why we tell people take get vaccines, right? So we could reduce the incidence of having these viral infections. Yeah. Is there any indication that people are listening when we talk about the vaccines and, and, and why it's important for your, really, for your overall health? Right. Yeah, I think people have become maybe complacent. And then there are people who either like taking the vaccines or they don't. Well, we're seeing that those who've taken their vaccines, they'll have a more mild illness. Mm -hmm. So it'd be, you know, you'll feel like it's the common cold, although we still see very severe cases. But in general, if you've had the vaccine, you'll do a lot better. So I still recommend that people should do the vaccine. Yeah, just because yeah. COVID's not going anywhere, not right? Not going anywhere now. Um, obviously, there's, you know, ways that we can uh, lower our risks uh, for some of these heart issues. Talk to me a little bit about um, some of the key numbers that we need to be aware of when we're talking about our heart health. Oh, absolutely. So I think the three cardinal things that people really remember, I mean, of course, there's nutrition, diet and exercise, mm -hmm. but the blood pressure numbers, right? So the new guidelines that come out. So yeah, if you're 140 over 90 or above, that is not a good thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay? If people think that 140 over 90 is okay, it's not. Ideally, 120 over 70, 80. So know your blood pressure. Uh, in terms of your sugars, there are two numbers related to diabetes. There's the hemoglobin A1C, mm -hmm. and you wanna have that less than six. That tells you how you've been doing over several months. But a fasting blood sugar of 100 or less, fasting. So if you haven't eaten for four, 
hours or first thing in the morning, your blood sugar shouldn't be 200 or 300. That's yeah. bad. And then the lipids, Sandra, and I'm director of clinical lipidology, is a little bit more complicated because mm -hmm. there are a couple of numbers. And I, what I tell people is start at 200. Your total cholesterol should be less than 200. Yeah. The triglycerides, less than 150. The lousy cholesterol, or LDL, less than 100. But if you do have a heart problem, it should be less than 70. And then the good cholesterol that we talk about with women should be above 50, but there's new data now that suggests it shouldn't be too high. So I would say between 50 to 80 should mm -hmm. be great for your good cholesterol or HDL. Yeah, I know some people are listening to the list, and I'm familiar with, with those numbers. I don't know what all of my numbers are, but yes. my doctor didn't yell at me the last time <laughs> I saw her. So. Yes. I think most people, they get intimidated. I agree. Their websites, they're, the Mount Sinai website, um, you can go to that and see numbers. The American Heart Association, and you know, of course, we have that Go Red for Women campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, you can easily go to the website, see the recommendations for blood pressure, blood sugar, and cholesterol. So that's one way of doing it. And I would just write questions down. When you go into your doctor, you mm -hmm. forget things. You know, you something you know comes to your mind, you forget. Write the numbers down, and when you get the answers, write those down too, and make a reference for them. And yes. we still have to mention uh, the, the the possible ill effects yes. of alcohol, yes. uh, and not possible, and tobacco. I don't. Is yes. there an upside to tobacco use? Well, I think that. Uh, Maybe people are smoking less. However, mm -hmm. there are things like vaping mm -hmm. that is also not, you know, great for you. And uh, so just, you know, reducing nicotine or exposure to smoke is still important. We still have to reinforce that. Yeah. Yeah. The clinical trials. Yes. Um, which is one of these things I know that Mount Sinai has really been great the last few years talking about this issue, trying to get more yes. women, uh, people of color. Talk to us a little bit about um, why the underrepresentation of women and people of color in some of these clinical trials is important and why that, that, that track record really needs to be improved. Oh, that is such an important question. You know, when we're making recommendations for treatment and for management, we're assuming that it's been tested on everyone, mm -hmm. right? So um, if we're having women that are less of a percentage, I mean, I think that women are about 50-50 with men here in the U.S., but if you're making assumptions on a clinical trial where you have less than 30% of women, then can, is it generally applicable? Yeah. Same thing can, you know, really pertain to women and uh, to blacks and uh, other underrepresented minorities. About 12 to 14% in the country, but clinical trials, you know, 5, 6%. So it's important to make sure that you have a good representation from the general population so that you're your results can be applicable to everyone. Why does this continue to be an issue though? We've known that forever. Yes. That you, you, the way you treat a man for a heart attack, the symptoms for yes. women are different. Yes. They're just, they just are. Yes. And if you've got other groups that have maybe some different genetic right. um, issues, the treatment for them might be slightly different, but That's you need right. to know that. You do need to know that. I think that, you know, in general, women may present differently. Uh, they, their symptoms may be different, but women are typically the caretakers or caregivers here in the U.S. and involved with many different things and not so much themselves. So mm -hmm. I think that we have to change the narrative. We have to get involved with different organizations, civic and social organizations, who can actually advocate for women and minorities to be part of 
clinical trials, speak the language they speak, ask the questions they want to hear. And I think, yes, we'll get more enrollment into these clinical trials. Now, are you involved with uh, the, I understand Mount Sinai is launching a new clinical trial. Talk to me a little bit about that. So Mount Sinai is always involved with research. So one of the clinical trials that I'll be involved with, I'll be a, a site PI, um, will be a study looking at enrolling women and underrepresented minorities into a trial of either minimally invasive uh, study uh, procedures versus open heart surgery okay. in people who've had blockages or you know uh, clots in their heart, mm -hmm. preventing them from having a heart attack or they've already had a heart attack. So they'll be randomized, meaning mm -hmm. that they'll either go into the minimally invasive arm or the arm with surgery, and then we will find out after enrollment and studying these people, whether which which arm is better to improve quality of life and outcome for women and minorities. So okay. we're looking forward to that trial to be starting very soon. Dr. Icy, it's always nice always to talk pleasure. to you. I, I sometimes, I, I feel like I've been better about my health, so I don't <laughs> okay. feel as guilty yes. after listening to And you to shouldn't, you. because I think that, you know, as we get ready and prepared, we get beautiful on the outside. We've got to do things to be beautiful and healthy on the inside as well. All right, yes. thank you so much. My pleasure, nice. happy to be here. When we come back, a groundbreaking exhibit that celebrates a century of black art and artist. So stay with us. A groundbreaking new exhibit celebrates the diverse artistry of black creators. Century, 100 years of black art at the Montclair Art Museum is organized around six major themes, highlighting different concerns, different visions and practices. Here to tell us more is one of the exhibit's co-curators, Dr. Adrian L. Childs. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Oh, thank you for having me, having me. And I know that you are, you want to give credit where credit is due. So this is a project that you worked on with another curator, correct? Yes, I worked on it with Nico Okoro. As she and I are co-curators and we're both guest curators for the museum. So we don't work there permanently, but they've invited us in to uh, work on this, like you said, groundbreaking exhibition. How, how did this come about? You know, how does it start when you're able to, you know, pull all these different works of art together and put it into to one show? Mm, how does it start? That's a really good question. Well, the museum, the Montclair Art Museum, was interested in pulling together, looking at their African-American art collection, or their co collection of art by African-American artists, I think it's better to say it that way. And, and instead of doing it with the curators on staff, they decided to call in Nico and myself as guest curators uh, to bring another eye, a fresh mm -hmm. eye to their collection. And both of us are, uh, if you will, experts in uh, African-American art. And so they thought we would be able to come in and look at the works that they've collected really since the 1940s and you know they started collecting then but they really started collecting black we're calling it black art in the 1970s 80s 90s they have amassed a very large collection so yeah. they called us in and said well what do you two think coming from different perspectives nico and i never met before but we came together um i'm of a different generation than her and so we both brought different perspectives to that collection. And we said, we think these are the works that are important. These are the works that are interesting, not just important. And this is uh, something we would like to see you know, come together um, that represents your uh, collecting over the, the last uh, you know, 100 years or so. 
basically not really collecting over 100 years, but it's it's art that has been created since uh, 1924. The first uh, object, uh, earliest object in our show is from 1924 and it's 2024. That's why we call the show Century. And I know that, you know, going into, I said that there are some themes, six major themes. Why did you and your co-curator uh, decide to organize it that way um, f for the viewer? Sure, um, you know, the reality is um, African-American artists have participated in many different, uh, you know, uh, art movements. We're talking about art literally over the last hundred years, many different concerns, ideas, passions. Um, and so there's not just one theme, right? So we don't want people to come in thinking that black artists are all talking about one thing. They're mm -hmm. not. So we look to see what are some of the uh, the groupings or themes that we that uh, artists have coalesced around that we can put together and make and sort of structure it for the viewer. Because um, we don't want to make it like everyone is doing the same thing or has the same sort of sensibilities. So we did find that there were some really interesting groupings to make. Uh, one of them, of course, was portraiture. That's really important. It always has been important. Um, being able to represent yourself um, and represent your community uh, in ways that are feel authentic to you, uh, feel dignified to you, and, and then um, in the face of being misrepresented, perhaps, by the larger community, portraiture has always been very important for Black artists, and there is a lot of really interesting portraiture over the centuries in uh, the century in this show. Another fun theme, I think, has been um, leisure, Black joy and leisure. How do um, Black artists represent um, leisure time, downtime, fun, sitting on the porch, hanging out on your rooftop, doing things that are, are, are sort of are not what we see on the news about mm -hmm. people in distress or in the in the you know criminal justice system stereotypes uh, we want to uh, people to see how artists kind of reflect their everyday lives and then beauty too leisure and is part of and beauty and uh, that's kind of part of uh, portraiture as, as well um so kind of looking at the the breadth of black life in America. Yeah, it sounds like you really, uh, you guys really focused on giving a well-rounded look mm -hmm. at, at at black life over the last century. Are there any um, particular pieces uh, that resonated with you personally? Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> it's like asking which child you like the most. <laughs> yes, you know, it's funny. Um, I really love uh, the piece by Joyce um, Scott, who is a, uh, artist out of Baltimore that works with beads. She's a bead artist, but she's a sculptress, you know, working with, with little tiny, tiny glass beads and weaving them together into unbe unbelievable sculptures. And the one that they have there is called Harriet Tubman as Buddha. So it, uh, it really is not necessarily a portrait of Harriet Tubman, but it's an idea of what would Harriet Tubman be like as a seated Buddha, as a kind of um, mythical figure or religious spiritual figure. And so it brings together the history of America and, and this American icon and a kind of spirituality that mm -hmm. I think is, is really key to what a lot of artists are doing, trying to think globally. Um, so I think that piece is, is a lot of fun. I love their sculpture, another sculpture by an artist named Nick Cave, who brings together mm -hmm. all kinds of different objects in what he calls sound suits, 
um, and there are lots of fun and they sort of resonate with more African traditions and carnival traditions. So there's a lot of sort of uh, energy coming out of, of these works. So those are two of some of them that I really like. And there's a lot of really interesting abstract art. And we can't forget that African-American artists are interested in abstraction, just like everybody yes. else. <laughs> so that, that um, I true. think it would be fun to, to see all the different ways into art that these artists have engaged with. And I, you've got quite a few familiar names. One of them, uh, I definitely, uh, I saw Gordon Parks. Photography, a, a part of this exhibit? Yes, yes, quite a, 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 a good part of it. And a lot of more contemporary artists are photographers, are photo-based. And, and we don't distinguish now between just photographer and artist. I mean, so, yeah, so Gordon Parks would have been one, and James Vanderzee, are, like I said, our earliest yeah. piece is a photograph. Um, but some of the contemporary artists like Carrie Mee Weems mm -hmm. are, they're photographers, as, and, but they add their own sort of artistry to it. So absolutely, we have a lot of photography. Adrian, can I ask you, what do you want the visitor coming to this exhibit to to feel as they pass through and walk away with? Um, I think that we all, uh, the museum, my co-curator and I, want the uh, artists to understand that, the, that African-Americans have been creating art uh, since they've been here, since we've been here. <laughs> um, and that it's, it's varied, uh, it's rich, it, it, and it, it can be a lot of fun. And I would like the, uh, the audiences to sort of just enjoy and take it for what it is, an experience of enjoyment um, and understand that um, art can enhance your life in many different ways, um, regardless of for what race and racial traditions or uh, familial traditions you come from. An important message. Now the exhibit runs uh, February 9th through June 23rd, correct? Yes. And it's at the Montclair Art Museum and the website, montclairartmuseum.org, to find out a little bit inf more information about the museum itself, who's included in this exhibit, uh, and, and the hours and everything for the exhibit, right? Yes, and there will be programming, so maybe the, the viewers might want to come for a program. All right. Yeah. A pleasure to meet you. The exhibit, again, I want to get the title right, Century 100 Years of Black Art at the Montclair Art Museum. Adrian L. Childs, one of the co-curators. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. All right. Sandra Bookman and Here and Now will be right back. Her beauty, her voice, her efforts to break down racial barriers. Lena Horne will forever be known as Hollywood's first black movie goddess, but she was so much more, including a premier nightclub performer and a dedicated soldier in the fight for civil rights. The new book, Lena Horne, Goddess Reclaimed, tells the story of her remarkable career that spans seven decades. And here to tell us more is author and leading authority on black cinema history, Donald Bogle. So nice to see you again. Oh, it's great to see you. Yeah, you great. always have the juicy, juicy insights. <laughs> we love having you here. Obviously, this isn't your first book. No, uh, no, not at all. Uh, this is actually my 10th book. Mm -hmm. And why uh, did you feel like this time you needed to put the spotlight on Lena Horne? Well, I had always liked Lena Horne, but I felt in recent years 
that she wasn't as well remembered as she should be. And um, I don't know what happened, but it does. You can lose history. And so I wanted to, to document her, her life. And I also um, wanted to do it visually as well as with my commentary. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was a search for photographs of Lena Horne. And she's never really had uh, a book done about her with the use of photographs. I mean, you see the other great stars of Hollywood, uh, Elizabeth Taylor or um, Ava Gardner, Marilyn Monroe. And I felt Lena should have something like that. And so I started working on it and I signed a contract to do it. And again, it was gonna be a lot of visuals, which it still has. But I got very much caught up in her life. I mm -hmm. was going to talk about her life, but I wrote more than I originally intended. Because you you were able to find and research yes, things yes. That, information that hadn't been out there before. Precisely, precisely. And when I sent the first sort of draft of the book to my editor, and I said to her, this is much too long, I'm going to have to cut it by a third. I said, give me suggestions on what you think I should cut. And after she read it, she got back to me. She said, I don't want you to cut anything. Oh, that's just love that editor. It. Yes, <laughs> leave it as as it is. Mm -hmm. So that's how, you know, the 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 book, the way it now stands. But you know, Lena was an important transitional figure in Hollywood. And I don't think there's enough recognition of that. And when you say transitional figure, what do you mean? Well, before Lena Horne in Hollywood, um, African-Americans um, played mostly servant roles, mm -hmm. comic roles. They were very talented yeah. actors and actresses. But they were limited. Yes, they were limited. By the system. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then when Lena came, um, MGM signed her to a big contract, and she became the first black woman in Hollywood films to be fully glamorized and publicized by her studio. Was MGM the most powerful of the movie studios? I should say there had been a couple of black women before Lena Horne who had this glamour mm -hmm. but and had worked in movies. There was Nina Mae McKinney, there was Freddie Washington in the original Imitation of Life. But they, you know, they didn't go further with yeah. them. But Lena, they had that whole, they had all of that machinery there. And they were determined to present her in a different way. They did test of her on how to, to light her, how, how to uh, photograph her, they even, and, um, she and had makeup. Her makeup on, yes. Yeah, which was really important to, for a woman of color at that yeah. time because you but, didn't have many choices. But the makeup ended up being all wrong because yeah. it, they didn't have the right base. So they really had to, 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 to work on that uh, again. So they, you know, she, she had all of this attention and for black America at that time, I mean, she was put on the cover. Ebony in the forties was a new publication. And can you imagine for black families, this is coming into their homes and Lena Horne is on, on the, the cover. Co so it, it, it was very, very uh, important, but her career did not go in movies the way she wanted. And some of that was because, you know, in the book you talk about the fact that she, 
you know, they'd shoot a certain kind of scene, her singing in the movie that didn't have anything to do with the actual narrative. So it was easy to pull it out when they shoot, showed the film in the South. Precisely. Which is just... Precisely. That she ended up doing, she only played two roles in Hollywood films of the 40s. She did Cabin in the Sky and she did a movie called Stormy Weather. Mm -hmm. These were all black movies done by the major studios and they're fabulous today mm -hmm. if you see them. Yes. These great African-American entertainers. But they didn't let her play other roles in the 40s. And the, the role Lena Horne wanted desperately to play, MGM was gonna remake Showboat. And Showboat was, you know, famous American musical. It had already been filmed twice in Hollywood. And there was a black character in it, Julie, who is um, of mixed racial heritage, we'll mm -hmm. say. And it's learned that she has black blood. and. Um, white actresses had played that part, and Lena Horne wanted to do it. And there was a movie called Till the Clouds Roll By that MGM did, and they opened with musical segments from Showboat with Lena Horne as this character from Showboat Julie. But when it was time to, to actually remake it, they wouldn't use her. Mm -hmm. And they used Ava Gardner, who ironically was a good friend of of Lena Horne's. Mm -hmm. And that for Lena Horne, uh, that's really when she had had it with She'd Hollywood. Yeah. One of the things I think a lot of people, d d not remembered by a lot of people, perhaps even known, is how uh, fiercely she was a part of civil, the fight for civil rights in this country. Um, that was an important part of her legacy. Very much so. I mean, she had a, you know, Lena Horne was born in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. She grew up, her very early years were in Brooklyn. Her grandmother was very progressive and, 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 and a fighter for, for civil rights in that, at that earlier time. And Lena picked up on that. I don't think she even realized mm -hmm. it until the point came. She always had this interest in, in social movements, racial movements, and she ended up speaking out. And you know, at one point she was blacklisted mm -hmm. yep. in the early 50s. And she said she, it was hard to get work in television and on radio, which was important at that time. And she had to get off the blacklist, but she kept fighting. And then later, with the rise of the civil rights movement in, in the late 50s and 60s, she became very much uh, a, part, a part of that. Can I ask you, how do you think she wants to be remembered? Um, she wanted to be remembered, I should say. I think that she, I think that for her, the, the, her civil rights work, she would want to be remembered. But I think she would also want to be remembered um, as, a, as an entertainer. You know, Lena Horne. She was talented. She, yes, Beautiful. and she, she, had, she was a real, she became a real song stylist. And one of the things I discovered while writing the book, I had known this, that she was constantly trying to improve her singing style. Mm -hmm. It was never enough. She constantly had to, had to work at it. And I think that, that, that she achieved it. So. Yeah. so those things, the civil rights, her, um, her, her performances as, as a singer. And you know, she was also a great nightclub singer. Yeah. I never saw her in nightclubs, but yeah. the people who saw her and remembered her, she was, it was they said she was just electric. A that you, you know, yeah, that, that it was really, um, it was a once in a lifetime I I experience. So I think those things that she would want to very much be remembered for.
The book, Lena Horne, Goddess Reclaimed, we can find it wherever books are sold? Yes, yes. Right, you can go to, um, my publisher doesn't even mention it, but you can go to that online place <laughs> where we get everything else, but you can also go to my publisher, and it's in bookstores, a few bookstores we have now. All right. It's always nice to see you, Donald. I won't call you Mr. Bogle. <laughs> and it's we, a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you again, Sandra. Thank you so much. It is yeah. an absolutely beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Up next, we're going to introduce you to an uncommon genius, Dr. Eddie Henderson. Stay with us. To call our next guest a triple threat would be really an understatement. New York City native Dr. Eddie Henderson is a physician. He is an accomplished jazz musician. That is really an understatement. And he just happens to be one of the first African Americans to compete in a national figure skating championship. The new PBS film, Dr. Eddie Henderson, Uncommon Genius, focuses on his remarkable life story. Take a look. I can't even fathom a thought of anything that has been left out. I've been given an overabundance of blessings in my life beyond my imagination. Look, man, I mean, who do we know that's a champion ice skater, a shrink, a medical doctor, and one of the greatest jazz musicians in the world? Joining us now, Dr. Eddie Henderson. What a pleasure it is to meet you. Believe me, it's my pleasure being here. I, look, you've done more things in your lifetime than 20 people have done in their lifetimes, and you've done them very well. So it's not difficult for me to, <clears throat> to understand uh, or how it is that your life story became the subject of a documentary. But I am curious to know how it came about. Did someone come to you and say, man, I think that, that your life really deserves uh, for people to, to, to know about it and take a long look at it? Yes, there was a gentleman, uh, Mark Rabideau, uh, in Denver, Colorado. He's the head of the music department there. He was kind of enthralled with my life story. And, and, and he was more or less the spearhead mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, that negotiated the contract uh, to do this film about my life, the three trajectories of my life story. And, you know, when I see the film, it almost seems... Uh, uh, like a fairy tale mm -hmm. to me come true. <laughs> but it's you. <laughs> yeah, it is me. Yeah, and what do you say when you when you see this guy up there? And, well, it's obviously it's you, but yes, you yeah. got to think that guy's pretty amazing, right? I don't think it's pretty. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that. I, I think that it's almost like surrealistic mm -hmm. seeing myself doing all these three different different things from the very beginning yeah. of, uh, of birth up until the present. And, and, and each trajectory, I was just doing what I loved at that particular time. Yeah. And, and they, one lit thing led to the other, and that's part of who I am uh, to this day. So let's start with the music. Yes. You come from a musical family, so that True. kind of makes sense that music would have such a big role in your life. Talk to me a little bit about your mom and your dad. Yes, my mother was in the original Cotton Club, and anybody who's ever seen that that uh, uh, iconic videotape of Fats Waller, mm -hmm. who wrote uh, Ain't Misbehavin' and the beautiful lady sitting on the piano singing it to Fats Waller. Well, that was my mother. Mm -hmm. And so th that was on the maternal side. My father was in a singing group called the 
the Charioteers was the number one black singing group in the 40s, over and above the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers. Mm -hmm. And they were actually in the Bing Crosby show, uh, uh, um, a radio show yeah. for three years in the early 40s. So that, 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 that was instilled, I guess, in my genes, mm -hmm. the musical aspect of my being. Yeah, and how old were you when you first picked up a trumpet? And one of the fantastic mm -hmm. and amazing things about your life story is that, man, you really had the best teachers on the planet, did, did you not? not? <laughs> <laughs> well, since my mother was in the, in the Cotton Club, she knew everybody in show business, and her, uh, her roommate was Billie Holiday, her best friend was Lena Horne. You are such a name dropper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey. <laughs> what can I say? And so I remember my mother and Lena Horne took me, since they knew Louis Armstrong, uh, he was appearing at the Powell Theater. So when I was nine years old, they took me to see Louis Armstrong, took me backstage to meet him. I was just nine years old, and so, on his trumpet and mouthpiece, he taught me how to make a sound mm -hmm. on, on a trumpet. trumpet. On his trumpet. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to turn into the rest of my life. Well, obviously, <laughs> it made quite the impression. I had no idea. And then you had a, another great teacher, didn't you? A little I bit farther along in your the, journey. As time and events went on, <clears throat> um, uh, my, my real father died when I was nine. My mother remarried a doctor in, in, in San Francisco and all his clients were people like John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Duke Ellington. <laughs> so when I came home from my trumpet lesson at the conservatory and when I was in high school, guess who was staying at the house? Well, who would that be? Miles Davis. Okay. <laughs> Name dropper, that's I what I said. You said that. <laughs> Name dropping again. And so he took me to the gig in, in his car that evening. And after that time, you know, Music, uh, jazz, quote unquote, had not registered yet in, 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 in my mind. Mm -hmm. But in his band, let me name drop a little more. In his band was John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, people mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. As soon as the band started playing, bang, it spoke the to light you. went on in my musical being. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, and obviously, you're Eddie Henderson, so you did somehow manage to do that for the rest of your life. <laughs> but you have all these other things, and I'm, I'm so excited for folks to see this documentary. How, how is it that one of the greatest trumpeters in jazz is also a physician? You're a doctor, and during yeah. all this love of music, you went to med school. Yes, I did. So that came about, influenced, I think, by your stepfather. By myself, who, who was a doctor, and to, to be truthful, he and I did not get along that mm -hmm. well. So at, when I was 14 years old, he told me that he was, he was the doctor, the closest thing to God, and I, I wasn't as smart as him. <laughs> well, he told the wrong person. So I said to myself, oh yeah, watch. So I went out of my, I, I just wanted to be a, a trumpet player, mm -hmm. but I went out of my way to be a doctor to prove him wrong. But he actually, but actually inspired you then. Yeah, but actually, <laughs> it, it was a challenge, in but yeah. The challenge inspired me. I guess I love challenges because that, 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 that's the motor of inspiration. At least for me it is, you know. Look, I don't want, I'd love to sit here with you for an hour and tell the story, but I want folks to see the documentary. Tell me, watching, you know, your life story unfold in this film, mm -hmm. what are you hoping people walk away with? What are you, what are you hoping they think, feel, learn? 
I think the most important thing in my mind that I would like people to walk away, except, especially the younger generation coming up and, and see the possibilities that one can do with their life. That old adage that a person can only do one thing is not true. Mm -hmm. And people always ask me, well, how do you do three things at once? And my common denominator answer is if you learn discipline at an early age, you can do any number of things, but, but, but it's harder to get discipline as you get older because mm -hmm. so many more life distractions. Yeah. And, and when you learn music at an early age, that teaches you mathematics. <laughs> One, two, three, yeah, four. Everything. And the figure skating. We didn't even talk about we your haven't figure even skating. Talked about that because yet. between the music, I'm honestly we're dropping so many famous names, I was a little bit yeah. distracted by that. Yeah. So figure skating, you you guys moved to Colorado at one point, was that? No, we, no, we moved you, to San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. And you actually were trained by someone who was quite a great figure skater, right? Yes, Richard Dwyer. Mm -hmm. And he was the star of the Ice Valley. So when I moved to San Francisco at age 14, it was in the middle of the summer, so I had no friends at all. So my stepfather, the first day I got there, he bought me a ticket to the Ice Follies. I was 14 years old. And I'd never seen ice skating before. And as soon as Richard Dwyer came out there gliding on the ice, it was like I was mesmerized. And, and, and I said, wow! And he did these jumps and stuff. And so every day for 30 days in a row, my stepfather afforded me the, the luxury mm -hmm. of sitting in the front row seat. And, and ironically, Richard Dwyer was going to be, after the show was over that, at the end of that summer, he was off for two weeks. I took my first two lessons in the figure skating. Mm -hmm. So he was my first superhero, you know. You, listening to you talk, it's as if, if you saw it and decided that's what you were going to do. That's what I wanted to do. That was, you just, you just did it. Point blank. You, you didn't have that thing that made you question whether or not you could accomplish that, oh, uh, whatever that was in front of you. No, it no. never crossed my mind. That's what I wanted to do. So that, that, that's what I, <laughs> I put my mind and, and my heart and all my effort into to doing. With all these things, I, I also need to throw in here that you also served in the armed forces. Yeah, in the so you are just <laughs> an amazing man. No, Can I ask you, is there anything you would have done differently? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, so it's almost like my life was predestined, mm -hmm. <laughs> so to speak. You know, everything was laid out. As I said before, it's almost like a, a fairy tale, a dream come true. You know, and uh, it's amazing. That's a great life. Yeah. So many it of has us. Been. No regrets. None. Change nothing. Nothing. Dr. Eddie Henderson, you are an uncommon genius. <laughs> and that is the name That's of your documentary. <laughs> you are going to be performing at the Smoke Jazz Club. Uh, much of this week from February 8th through the 11th and on the 7th of February at 7 and 9 p.m. there will be a film, a screening yes. uh, of the movie Uncommon, Uncommon Genius. And I want to send folks to a website, UncommonGenius.us. You can learn more about the documentary and SmokeJazz.com. Get some tickets for that performance. It is worth it. And have a look at the film if you get a chance there.
Oh. Thank you so much oh, for being with you. us. Thank you. Oh, such a great interview. No, you're you're a pretty fantastic talker. Oh, God <laughs> okay. bless you. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on Here and Now. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can watch at abc7ny.com or you can listen to our podcast wherever you subscribe. If you'd like to comment or share your story, email us at abc7ny or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. I'm Sandra Bookman. Enjoy the rest of your day.